you have your Bible with you this morning, I hope you do, turn to Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15, and we're going to be finishing up a section of Scripture this morning that began in verse 6 that calls us as believers to continue in Christ's completeness. See, Psalms 34, verse 8, calls all of us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Why? The verse goes on, because blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. In other words, when you trust in the Lord, you enter into an eternally blessed state. And that's what all of us did when we first trusted in Christ. We tasted that the Lord is good, as 1 Peter 2.3 says. We found that in Christ there was a rich feast for our souls, as Isaiah 25 verse 6 says, a spiritual blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places was found in Christ. As believers, this morning we find ourselves in an eternally, immensely blessed place in Christ. Similar to how Adam and Eve found themselves in a blessed position in the Garden of Eden. And yet Satan came for them anyway, didn't he? And though they were immensely blessed beyond imagining and had no reason for any discontentment at all in their life, Satan still came, was still able to deceive Eve, was still able to lead them away from God and from the enjoyment of his blessings. This is exactly what Satan attempts to do for us today as believers. We have every blessing and strength and joy and peace and grace and mercy found in Jesus Christ that we could ever ask or think. We are blessed beyond all imagining and have no reason for any discontentment as believers. And yet, Satan still comes to us. He attempts to deceive us and lead us away from Christ and all His blessings. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That was what was happening in the church in Colossae that this letter was written to. And so Paul writes this section of Scripture that we are going to look at this morning. He writes this section in his letter to the Colossians to encourage them to continue in Christ's completeness. To live life attached to Him and to think thoughts according to Him. We ought to ground our lives, if you remember when we were looking at these verses, our identities and our eternal destinies on Jesus Christ and on Him alone. Our life is to be summarized as Jesus. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. We ought to ground our lives on Him and on Him alone. Why? As Paul says in verses 9-10, through 10, because Christ is God's fullness in body and Christ is God's fullness in believers. That's what we began to look at last week. For in Him, Paul writes, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in Him. Jesus is everything God is. Jesus is everything that God has. Therefore, when you have Jesus... You have everything God has to give you. In Christ, we have been spiritually filled. And Paul gives us in verses 11 through 15 three glorious examples of how we have been filled in Christ. First, your salvation has been fully achieved, so trust in his powerful transformation. That's what we saw last week in verses 11 through 12. Do not trust in man's ideas or programs to bring about lasting change, they are faulty, they will fail. Trust in Jesus Christ, who alone can transform a man from the heart, and from the heart transform his entire life. Jesus Christ alone can do that. 
Don't trust in programs. Don't trust in people. Trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. Your salvation has been fully achieved, so believers, trust in His powerful transformation. Don't trust in lesser things. Paul gives two other examples of how we've been filled in Christ that we're going to look at this morning. In verses 13-15, through not only has your salvation been fully achieved so that you can trust in His powerful transformation, but second, your debt has been fully paid that's in verses 13 through 14. And third, your victory has been fully won. In other words, you are complete in Christ. So let's take a look at this in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 6 for context, on into verse 15. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. Verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all Our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. This is the Word of God, whose faithfulness endures to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus We thank You for the fullness that is ours in Him. We thank You for unveiling that fullness for us today to study as Your people. May we drink deeply. May we think deeply. May we be changed deeply. For Your honor and for Your glory, exalt Your Son in our midst today. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. So after Paul shows us that in Christ your salvation has been fully achieved and therefore you can trust in His powerful transformation, Paul then shows us that in Christ your debt has been fully paid. This is in verses 13 through 14. Your debt has been fully paid and he's going to tell us, therefore trust in his pleasing track record. Look at verse 13. Paul begins by saying, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. What is the one thing that a dead man needs most? It is life. And this is exactly what God says you have received in Christ Jesus. Paul says first that we were dead in our trespasses in the uncircumcision of our flesh. In other words, before we were united to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, we were a spiritual corpse. We were lying dead, enveloped in a state of constant sin and rebellion against God, unwilling and unable to respond to Him. Like 1 John 5.19 pictures, we were like little infants laying totally content and at ease beneath the power of the evil one. See, our problem when we were outside of Christ is not that we sinned. Our problem is that we never did anything but sin. We were in spiritual bondage to and in love with our old, sinful, fleshly nature. We didn't love God. We didn't love our neighbor. As the first and second greatest commandment teaches, Romans 8, 7 and Titus 3, 3 says that we hated God and we hated one another. We broke those laws. We trespassed those two greatest commandments, thus breaking all the others because we did not love God. We did not honor Him, nor did we give Him thanks. How many times can you honestly say this week that you gave thanks to God? We did not reverence His name. We did not commit our lives to Him, nor did we worship Him as we ought. We broke the first four commandments. And because we did not love our neighbor, we broke the next six. We disobeyed and disrespected our parents. We hated others in our hearts. We lusted after others. We took advantage of those around us. We lied. We grumbled for what other people have. And we did not have to work hard at this, did we? You didn't have to wake up this morning and say, I am going to try really hard, and I think if I really try really hard, I can disrespect my parents today. Man, it would just come out of your mouth without even thinking about it. You didn't have to sit when you were set into a delicate, hard position to say, I'm going to try really hard to try to tell a lie right now. It would come out of your mouth before you even thought about it. What does that show you? I show you that you were in a spiritual state, not of, oh, I think I've got many options and I'm just going to happen to choose this one. That shows you were in complete bondage to your sinful flesh. Complete bondage to your old nature. Complete bondage to the power of sin in your life. We hated God. We hated one another. What a reminder this morning that apart from being united to the living Christ, All mankind is dead in their trespasses and sins and live in a constant state of hatred and rebellion against God. Apart from Christ, we are children destined for wrath like the rest of mankind, as Ephesians 2 says, awaiting a day in which God's righteous judgment for every evil deed that we so deeply and dearly loved in this life will be visited on our heads for all eternity. That is the reality if you are outside of Christ. 
Truly without God, as Scripture says, we are without hope in this world. We're dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. So what is the one thing that people like us need most? What is the one thing a dead man needs most? Answer, it is life. It is eternal life. Spiritual life. And that is exactly what God gave you in Christ. And he describes what that life looks like for the rest of this passage. Paul writes, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive, how? Together with Christ. And we know from verse 11 that Him, together with Him, is Christ. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive, how? By uniting us to the living Christ with the One who has the power over death. God did not add Jesus to your life to give you a better one. He united you to Christ so that you could be alive. You were spiritually dead. This is what our previous verse, verse 12, was talking about and what Romans 6, 4 testifies of as well. Paul says there that we have been immersed into Jesus Christ. We've been baptized into Jesus Christ. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in a newness of life. You understand this, don't you? I mean, the world that we live in around us is full of dim reflections of this saving reality. The reality of being made alive by having a vital connection and unity to another thing. For example, from the wilting branch that's grafted into a living vine, or to a weak and dying tree that's enveloped by another living tree, to a dead battery that's being hooked up to a charged one, right? All of these are dim reflections of this glorious reality that we who are dead spiritually, God made us alive by connecting us and uniting us vitally together with the living and resurrected Jesus. We are made alive together with Him. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, we are new creations experiencing a new reality because we are in Christ Jesus, alive together with Him. You have no spiritual life at all apart from Christ. Nothing good dwells in you. Everything good dwells in Christ. Alive together with Him, as Paul says over in Ephesians 2, 4-5 through that we looked at this morning, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We went from being spiritually dead and enslaved to the sinful power of our old nature one moment to being radically changed and transformed from the heart in the next. How did that happen? God in His grace united us together with the living Christ. We're made alive together with Him. And I love this next part. What is one of the many blessings we enter into the very moment we were placed into Christ by grace through faith in Him? We entered into the blessing of God when He forgave us of all our trespasses. Would you look at that? In Jesus, we are forgiven of all our trespasses. Think of that. 
our trespasses are immeasurable. Why well, Paul just said that we were dead in our trespasses. We were in a settled state in which we heaped upon ourselves trespass upon trespass upon trespass. That was our life. Even if I strove to recall all of my sins from now until I stand before God, I could never count them all. So vast are the sum of them. And I would be adding to their number every single moment of every single day. I still do. As Ezra 9, 6 says, My iniquities have risen higher than my head. In other words, I'm drowning in my sin. And my guilt has mounted up to the heavens. This is me. This is you apart from Christ. And yet, in Jesus... We have been forgiven of all our trespasses. Past, present, future. All of them. That is rapturously good news. Glory be to God as we sang this morning. My sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. As Romans 5.20 says, Where our sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. In Jesus, we have been forgiven of all our trespasses. And would you look at that? That this is in the past tense. In other words, it's already done. If you are in Christ, believer, right now, this morning, where you are seated, you are forgiven of all your trespasses that you've ever committed. You are forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. As the hymn writer Horatius, or Horatio Spafford wrote, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to that cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is what this verse is saying. It's saying that you were forgiven of all of your sin the very moment you placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It no longer stands between you and God because you are in Jesus. Why does Paul remind us of this? It's because the most important question in the world is this. How can a man be right before God? Job 25, verse 4. This verse tells us that a man is made right before God the very moment he trusts in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness. In that moment, you enter into an eternally perfect standing with God forever. The very righteousness of God is given to you as a gift through faith in Christ Jesus, not through a righteousness of your own. In that moment, you are forgiven of all of your sins and are made right and righteous before God for all time. But why is Paul mentioning it to the Colossians? To believers who have already trusted in Christ. Why am I preaching it to you? Many of you perhaps have already trusted in Christ. Why am I preaching this message of forgiveness of all of your sins to you? It is because in Paul's time and today, Colossian heretics were coming along and they were saying, well, you can trust in Jesus Christ to become righteous, but there's still some more things you need to do if you want to remain righteous before God. 
You need to keep these laws. You need to observe these Sabbaths. You need to keep these holidays. You need to perform these ceremonies. You need to offer up these sacrifices. We still hear this argument today, do we not? Well, you might be trusting in Jesus Christ, but when you sin as a believer, uh, you need to do more than just confess your sins to God and Christ in order to receive forgiveness for them. There's still some things that need to be done, we're told. Why, you need to perform self-discipline and acts of penance. How's Lent going? You need to engage in self-denial and severity to the body. Colossians 2.23 You need to observe Mass and go to a priestly confessional if you really want to be forgiven of your sins. Because forgiveness of sin wasn't fully accomplished on the cross. There's still things you need to do to be forgiven and be right before God. Christ is not enough, they say. Paul says no. In Christ, your debt has been fully paid. Everything that's needed for eternal forgiveness and a right standing before God was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Therefore, as Acts 3, 19-20 says, Repent, therefore, and turn to Jesus Christ that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. You see, in Jesus' full forgiveness, times of guilt are replaced by times of refreshing. You sit there and say, I don't want anything to do with God right now. When I think of Him and when I think of my life, I am overwhelmed with a sense of guilt. Then I call on you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ that your times of guilt can be replaced by times of refreshing, knowing that your debt has been completely paid through the death of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. This is what I think Psalms 32, 1-2 is talking about when it says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Guilt is horrible. You know it, I know it. It crushes you. But oh, the blessedness of knowing that your sins are forgiven. There is nothing like it in the world. To know that there is peace with God between you and Him through our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing like it. Therefore, Isaiah 55, verse 7 says this, Oh, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, listen to this, for He will abundantly pardon all sin, past, present, future. How does He do that, you say? How is that possible? How can God forgive me of all my sins, past, present, and future? How is that possible? Answer, by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse 14. Such a marvelous verse. God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is marvelous. See, all of our sins piled up a record of debt that stood against us before God, right? What does Scripture say? Romans 6.23 The wages of sin is death. All our sins had to be paid for. 
And the consequences were obvious. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, no remission, no removal of sins. Death awaited us because of the record of our sins. And every single day, we were adding to that record of debt before God, adding to the just payment of death that deserved to fall upon us. Well, here we're told that that record of debt that stood against us has been canceled. In other words, it's been erased. That's really the word there. It's been eternally removed from us as far as the east is from the west, as Psalms 103 verse 12 says. Why? How is this possible? How could all of my transgressions be washed away and removed from me for all time? Because God set it aside doing what with the record of my debt? He nailed it to the cross. See, back then when criminals died, the charges of all of their wrongs would be listed on a wooden plank and nailed above their heads. So do you get the picture, believer? The record of every single one of your sins that you cannot even remember and the ones you do. Every single sin that should hang in condemnation over your head was instead nailed where? To the cross over Christ's. Think about it. Jesus' charges were empty when He died on the cross, weren't they? King of the Jews? Why were the charges above Jesus' head empty when He died on the cross? So that He could take the totality of our sins, the totality of our charges upon Himself when He died in our place. I mean, this is the Gospel. God made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin. He was holy, spotless, undefiled. Nevertheless, Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. At the cross, God treated Jesus as if He lived my life so that He could treat me as if I lived His. And what's the result? Total forgiveness and perfect righteousness fully paid for and available to all who call on Him in faith. You say, well, how can you do that? Because the record of every sin ever committed by every person who would ever trust in Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross in Jesus. That's why Romans 8.1 can say this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are what? In Christ Jesus. As the songwriter wrote on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on Him was laid here in the debt of Christ, in the death of Christ I live. Every moment of shame your mind goes to right now. Every moment of sorrow, every moment of sin is placed on the Christ. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now why, again, ask yourself the question, why was it so important for Paul to remind us as believers of this? First, because I think it encourages Christian humility. That's going to be something that's very important when Paul comes later in the book of Colossians. There is no place for pride or self-righteousness in the Christian life. Do I consider myself a good person? Do I crave others to think highly of me? Foolishness. Look at the cross, believer. 
Christ hung on the cross in direct contradiction to all our self-pride. When Jesus Christ was exposed, we were exposed on that cross. You see Him hanging on the tree? Those are our sins. You see Him hanging on the tree? That's our shame. You see Him hanging on this tree? That's our death. That's our judgment. That's our condemnation for all the transgressions I want other people to pretend that I do not have. To preserve a self-esteem for myself I should never even have. You think yourself righteous? The cross tells a different story if you think yourself righteous by your works. As Milton Vincent wrote, The most humiliating gossip that could ever be whispered about me is blared from Golgotha's hill, and my self-righteous reputation is left in ruins in the wake of its revelations. See, there's no self-esteem after the cross. There's only Christ-esteem. The worst thing that could ever be revealed about my character, frankly, was revealed 2,000 years ago when it took the death of God's own Son to save a wretch like me. We are way more messed up, ladies and gentlemen, than we are letting on. The cross shows it. So, the question I want to ask you is if you're dealing with sin as a believer, struggling with sin this morning, why hide in the shadows? Walk in the light. Confess your sins and dress yourself in the humility that the cross calls you to. Oh, but pastor, if you knew some of the things that I have done, I don't think I'll be surprised. I see the cross. And I see forgiveness at the cross. Walk in the light. Find forgiveness. Be cleansed. The second reason why I think Paul reminds us of our forgiveness in Christ is not only because it encourages humility, but also because it encourages commitment. It encourages commitment to Christ. If we're not careful, we can begin to trust in our own track record for acceptance before God, just like the Jews did before, seeking to establish their own righteousness, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10. We can wake up in the morning thinking, well, if I want God to really love me today, then I better do a really good job of reading my Bible, praying, and being friendly to people around me, right? And if I wake up and I do a really poor job, God must love me less. And when we fail to meet our righteous standards for the day, which, by the way, will always be infinitely lower than God's righteous standards, (laughs) we can feel like God loves us less when we don't meet them. Why? Because we're trusting in our own track record, and that's exactly what the Colossian heretics were trying to make these believers do. Trust in your own ability to eat this and not eat that, to do this and not do that. Trust in your own track record to maintain acceptance before God. And Paul's response is, no, Christ has set you free. Do not submit again to a yoke of bondage. Remember that your forgiveness and your right standing before God came through faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else has changed. Your debt has been fully paid, so trust in His pleasing track record, not in your own. So as we often sing, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Your salvation has been fully achieved, so trust in his powerful transformation. 
Your debt has been fully paid, so trust in His pleasing track record. And then finally, your victory has been fully won, so trust in His protecting triumph. Look at verse 15. It says here, He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. See, the Colossian heretics said, and still say today, well, deliverance from your sins might be found in Jesus Christ, but if you want deliverance from the powers of evil, then you've still got work to do. Why? You've got to go to the Holy Spirit, you've got to rebuke Satan, you've got to call down angels by name, establish a hedge of protection around yourself through all of these prayers, because those evil demons are going to grab you away if you don't pay attention. That's wrong. But that is what a lot of people teach, or a lot of people think. The Holy Spirit doesn't send you to the name of angels to pray down from heaven. The Holy Spirit sends us to Christ to believe what Christ has already done for us. And in this case, it is something Christ has already done for us in the cross. He has already triumphed over the powers of evil. Past tense. It's already done. That's what this verse is teaching. Paul is saying, listen believer, You who have trusted in Jesus Christ, you do not need to fear Satan, nor his legions, nor anything that they will ever try to throw at you. They've already been disarmed, they've already been crushed, and they've already been put to shame at the cross. No matter what they do to you, you have an ever-present ally named Jesus Christ who wields absolute power over them. This is not a duality we live in this universe. This is God's universe. Satan's just living in it. They've already been disarmed, crushed, and put to open shame at the cross. Even Satan's, just think about it, even Satan's most powerful weapon, death, has lost its sting, as we'll see next week, due to the work of Jesus Christ. God has disarmed, put to shame, and triumphed over Satan and his legions in Christ, and he has done it all for those of us who are in Christ. According to Hebrews 2.14, because of Jesus, the devil and his power have already been destroyed. It's a done deal. That's why Paul says that God is currently triumphing over them in Christ. Paul's painting a picture of the triumphal processions, which were events that were very common in the ancient world, and the Colossians would have been very familiar with it. See, when a conquering general would win a battle or a war, he would parade his vanquished enemies chained to his chariot through the town to the entrance of the palace where he would then order the death of the disarmed and the defeated enemies. God is saying here that is exactly who Satan is. He's disarmed. He's put to shame. And he's being led to his inevitable death sentence. The victory's already been won. Therefore, we do not need to fear Satan's power, for he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world, as 1 John 4 4 says. Christ moves in victory throughout this world with every power and principality held captive by his almighty triumph on the cross, and we are safe and secure in him. Do you believe that? I sure hope so. Because how in the world will you ever demonstrate a life of faith in the midst of a watching world? What a glorious truth to live out in our day and age. Here we are surrounded by a world that is in constant fear of being crushed by some unfeeling, malignant force in the universe. Half of what comes out of Hollywood preys off of this fear, right? 
Fear of natural disaster. Fear of alien attack. Fear of demon possession. Fear of deadly illness. You know the one message of hope that shines through all the darkness of the unknown? Jesus Christ. Crucified. Risen. Coming again. Lord of all, under whom all the universe is made subject to, for He is both Creator and Conqueror. Because of Christ, we need fear nothing. Our victory has already been won. Romans 8.37 says, Through Him we are more than conquerors. So trust in His protecting triumph. What He's already won for you on the cross. What a case Paul has laid out. This is why you ought to live life attached to Christ. Right? This is why you ought to think thoughts according to Him, not anyone else. It's because Christ is God's fullness in body. And Christ is God's fullness in believers. As Robert Murray McShane once wrote, unfathomable oceans of grace are in Christ for you. Dive and dive again. You will never come to the bottom of these depths. There are unsearchable riches in Him. Seek more of them. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. In Christ your salvation has been fully achieved. In Christ your debt has been fully paid. In Christ your victory has been fully won. Therefore trust in His powerful transformation. Trust in His perfect track record. And trust in His protecting triumph that He's already won for you. In the cross. In the cross. For you are complete in Him. This is the Word of God from Colossians 2, 13-15, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until He comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank You that He is the fullness of deity. Everything You are, everything You have to give is already ours in Christ. Father, we thank You for this by reminding us that He has accomplished a full salvation for us. Our old nature is already dead and gone if we've trusted in Him. Our new nature has already come. Father, help us to trust in His powerful transformation on our behalf. Jesus is the only one that can produce true and lasting change in a person's life. Help us to believe that. Father, we thank You that Jesus has done a perfect track record, living a perfect life under the law that we could never live, and then taking Your wrath in our place for our sins. Father, help us to trust in His perfect track record to be accepted in Your sight for forgiveness of all of our sins. Christ alone. Father, we thank You that in Christ our victory has been fully won. Help us not to live in this world in fear for You have not given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of love and of power and of sound mind. The victory has already been won. For us, therefore, help us to live lives that are very simple. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Satan is disarmed. And glory awaits. Father, help us to live in the reality this week that in Christ 
We have all we need. That in Christ we are complete. Lacking in nothing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.